0: Uh, The Swiss pastor and theologian Karl Barth once said the preacher should not walk into the pulpit unless he has a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. Allowing the Bible to interpret the newspaper, allowing the Bible to speak to the newspaper. Now I really appreciate what Sally said at the beginning as she was reflecting a little bit on the fact that we've all read the newspapers. And so the question I want to ask today is, well, what does the Bible say to the newspaper? And I think it says something like this from Ephesians chapter 2. You are never beyond the reach of God's grace or the need for it. You are never beyond the reach of God's grace or the need for it. And as we look at the people and the stories and the events that populate our newspapers, we can kind of see two dynamics at work in In a myriad of different ways, those who are living as if they are beyond the reach of God's grace, and that ends in some form of despair. Or those who are living as if they are beyond the need for grace, and that normally results in some form of pride. And pride and despair tend to be two sides of the same coin. Both view the world apart from God's grace, and both are prevalent throughout our newspapers. And so as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 has already praised God for the glorious riches of his grace. He's always already prayed that we would experience the power of that grace at work in our lives. And now Paul wants us to consider why we so desperately need that grace in the first place. And how it is that God's grace has in fact reached out to us and to the world. So first, the need for grace. When you read the first three verses, Verses of chapter 2 you realize that Paul doesn't have an overly sentimental or idealistic or optimistic view of, Of the world apart from God's goodness towards it. You can See hints of our Anglican confession, which we'll say later Apart from God's grace. There is no health in us But the imagery that Paul uses is even a little more pointed. He uses the imagery of death An image that shows just how entrenched we were in the ways of sin and patterns of sin. He says in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And this was a weird form of like active death in which you formerly lived, in which you formerly walked. And then Paul goes on to describe this spiritual death in terms of like a trinity of compromise. He talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Interestingly enough the three things that show up in our baptismal liturgy the world the flesh and the devil First the world he says you were following the course of this world verse 2 Mark Twain once said whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority. It's probably time to pause and reflect Now Mark Twain is not exactly someone to go to for spiritual wisdom all the time But he has been a keen observer of human nature And that kind of social, psychological dynamic of group think. The term the world in John's literature throughout the New Testament, and oftentimes in Paul, is a a social, cultural term. It means human society, its systems and its structures and its values as they are organized without reference to God in all of its manifold forms. Uh, Kierkegaard picked up on this in his book, Sickness to Death. He said, worldliness is not so much just giving in to your internal desires of whatever you want to do. Paul's going to talk about that soon. He said, worldliness is actually losing yourself in the crowd. So he says, by seeing the multitude of the people around you, by being busy with all sorts of worldly affairs and being wise in the ways of the world, it is easy for us to forget ourselves To find it too risky to be ourselves, much easier and safer to be like others, to become a copy, to become a number, to go along with the crowd. And Kierkegaard, as he goes on to explain this, he says the tricky part about this is that it's really hard to detect in ourselves and it's really hard to detect in the world around us because it most often makes life easier and more convenient and more comfortable in the world. And so he says, what we call worldliness as Christians simply consists of people who pawn themselves to the world. So Paul says that one aspect of the human predicament that we're in is that we have this sort of groupthink mentality and we tend to follow the course of the world, the air in which the cultural air we breathe. But Paul says there's a second dynamic as well. There's one called the devil. So look at verse 2. He says, you are following the prince of the power of the air, which is kind of like a cryptic way of referring to Satan, Uh, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobeying. Now, Paul's language may feel kind of distant and antiquated to a lot of people, like who is this prince of the power of the air? But Paul is basically saying this. He's saying there is more to the world than what meets the eye. There is an unseen realm in which evil forces and powers are operating. And that's why Paul is mentioned so many times in the book of Ephesians, the heavenly places. Five times he says the heavenly places. Paul is not thinking of heaven as just some like distant realm. He is thinking of heaven as an invisible dimension of earth, an invisible dimension of everywhere we are. I think it was C.S. Lewis who once said that the veil between heaven and earth is really thin and it's porous and nowhere more so than at the Eucharist. Well, there's something about what C.S. Lewis is saying there that captures the biblical vision of heaven and earth, invisible and visible, always in constant communication, in interaction and contact with one another, whether we are aware of it or not. And Paul is saying this, too, is an aspect of the human predicament. It's not just that we follow the ways of the world, it's that in that world, Satan is seeking to spread lies and twist the truth and deceive and tempt and steal and destroy the goodness that God has created. And there's a third thing, Paul says in verse 3, there's the flesh. We once walked and lived in the passions of our flesh, says Paul, carrying out the desires of of the body. It's the same word for flesh there actually. Flesh and the mind. Now there's a long debate in human history as to where the primary locus of human brokenness lies. Does it mind and does it lie in the human mind or in the human will? So Socrates for example and many who have followed him since conceived of the human problem primarily in terms of the mind, primarily in terms of intellect. Human beings are people who mostly desire to do the right thing, who mostly want the good. The great problem with humanity is that we don't know what the right thing is. We don't know what the good is. And so the primary human sin, according to somebody like Socrates and those in his wake, is ignorance. And the solution has to be some sort of education. Now, there are others like Kierkegaard himself and many who have followed him who conceive of the human problem primarily in terms of the will, in volitional terms. So sin doesn't consist in people not knowing the right thing in the good. Sin consists much more in the fact that people don't want to understand the good, or that in understanding the good, people would rather not do it. And so the primary human sin is not ignorance. It's actually outright rebellion. Now, where does Paul land in this debate of the ages? Paul says both. Carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And in Paul, the flesh does not mean just one's physical body. It actually refers to something much more volitional. It refers to human moral agency, that part of us that desires and deliberates and makes decisions. And Paul's saying what has happened is we have given in to the sinful desires of our faulty moral agency. In other words, we have adopted the you-do-you mentality. Susie and I always say that to each other. You-do-you, don't worry about it. Just doing whatever your gut tells you is right. And Paul's telling us that the great human tragedy is that people who have been created in the image of God have been created by God have been created for God, have been created to reflect God, have been created to love and worship and adore and serve God, are people that are following the course of this world trying to live without him. Are people who have believed the half-truths that Satan consistently spreads. And are people who are constantly given in to their own selfish desires. It's the world. It's the flesh. And it's the devil. Now I've spent a lot of time here, and I want to take a few more minutes to flesh it out. (laughs) If you'll allow me. Because I think this is where a lot of people have a tough time with the Christian faith. Because it seems to suggest an overly offensive and depressing view of the human person, doesn't it? Like, uh, for some, they think Christianity is actually some sort of anti-humanism. So, to believe in the Christian God and the Christian gospel, according to what Paul's talking about here, is to diminish the human person, to, to, to belittle their value and their worth and their dignity. Isn't the la- this the last thing that we need in the world right now? And we have to ask ourselves is this true? Well, one thing to clarify from the very beginning is that when you pan out from Ephesians chapter 2 and you see the whole biblical vision of the human person, we realize that sin is never pure evil. Sin is not good, but it's never pure evil. Sin is always an aberration from an original goodness that was God's creative intention and design for humanity. So in, in other words, sin and evil is always parasitic. It cannot exist unless there is an original goodness that is God's gift of creation itself from which sin can distort it and mar it. And so the first thing to remember when we pan out in the biblical perspective of humanity is God sees what he made and he says, behold, it is very good. And then sin seeks to mar that good. And the second thing is that the doctrine of total depravity, according to Christian teaching, does not mean that we humans are as bad as we can be or as bad as we could potentially become. It simply means that in every area of our lives, we have been marred and touched and disordered by sin in some way. So the Christian faith, I think, actually gives us the resources to resist reductionistic views of the problems that beset human society. Because there are those that try to reduce the problems that we experience as a society simply to the spiritual realm. It's the devil who is twisting and distorting people. So much so that humans and cultures and politicians just become mere puppets with no moral responsibility or volitional will. And Sometimes this can get distorted into certain conspiracy theories and things like that. But there are also those who tend to reduce human sin to just a social political reality. It's the oppressive systems and structures of this world and then there will be a tendency to demythologize the spiritual realm as either antiquated or outdated or as simply a projection of our subconscious human fears. But then there are those who tend to reduce human sin to just the individual moral will. It's all about individual choices, and individual words, and individual actions. You see, what Paul is saying here in verses 1 to 3 is that all those accounts of the human problem are totally reductionistic. It's all of them together. It's the world, the flesh, the devil, fallen social systems, fallen individual wills, fallen spiritual forces, are all part of the broken world in which we inhabit I think one would be hard-pressed to find a more holistic account of the problems that plague human society than this. And so one of the questions that it it raises for us is, is the problem that um, we are unwilling to point out the fact that this sort of sin and evil actually exists in the world, is that the real problem that we often face in acknowledging what Paul is naming? Or is it much more personal than that? we don't want to admit the fact that we've been culpable in some way, that we've been complicit in some way, that we maybe are personally responsible and we participated in some way. See I think a beautiful image for what Paul is describing here is to think of the human person as a a marvelous medieval stained glass window. I had a privilege of serving Eucharist um, at the university I went to in Scotland for a number of years and we would serve Eucharist in the choir stalls of an 11th century medieval church in these beautiful stone walls and stained glass windows the human person is like a glorious stained glass window bearing the beauty in the image of its creator but that stained glass window has had a stone thrown through it and it's created a spider fracture throughout the whole thing when the sun rises and reflects through the manifold colors of that stained glass window, we can still see the splendor and the glory and the shimmer of the original goodness shining through. But there is no area of that stained glass window that is fully what it was intended to be. It's broken in every place. That's the need for grace that Paul is talking about. And then. In, at the end of 3 and verse 4, Paul turns to talk about the reach of God's grace to those who need it. He says, but God. In his grace, God reaches all the way down into the complexity of this human situation. He says no to it. And then in Christ, he lifts up the brokenhearted." He enriches those who are poor in spirit. From the grave all the way up to heaven, God says yes to humanity in the form of divine love and kindness and mercy and grace. Verse 5. Even when we were dead, (laughs) God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What Paul is describing here is not some fanciful work of his imagination. It is a real, living, personal union. God's grace comes to us by attaching us to his Son and then elevating humanity into his glorious presence. And Paul tells us that it's this very elevation of humanity. Grace doesn't diminish humanity. Grace doesn't belittle human value. It elevates it. Makes humans what they were created to be. Makes them fully alive in God's holy presence. And Paul tells us that this is the abundance and the extravagance and the dazzling brilliance of God's being. Verse 4, he is rich in mercy. Verse 4, the great love with which he loved us. Verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. It's like a torrential downpour on a barren desert. <laughs> Life springs up and beauty flourishes. It's like a thirsty little child holding a plastic sippy cup at the bottom of Niagara Falls. It's more than we can fathom. God's power and his grace is more than we can fathom. And yet Paul says, fathom we must, fathom we may, because Christ has said, God has said yes to us in Christ. And this is not your own doing, says Paul. This is the gift of God. I think it was Tim Keller who once said that the gospel simultaneously says to us, on the one hand, you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. And on the other hand, you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. So what's the upshot, according to Paul? What's the result of all this grace? Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A little word for workmanship resonates with artistic beauty and design. It says that God has made us to be living, embodied examples of his artistry, like a sonnet, or a sculpture, or a musical score. The way we live our lives, our good works, are to show the world a new way of being human that operates from a place of grace. So what does it look like? Well, that's what chapters 4 through 6 are all about, so you're going to have to wait a few weeks for us to get there. But for now, I leave you this question. How is your life different? Is it different? Is the way in which you live your life and do good works actually different? Because you have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When people encounter your life, do they get the sense that you are that little child at the bottom of Niagara Falls? Your cup is overflowing. See, good works are not the distinctive purview of the Christian. Lots of people are seeking to do good works. Lots of people are trying to make a difference in the world. Lots of people are trying to bring peace and justice where it's so desperately needed. But somehow the Christian goes about these things from a different standpoint. There's a way in which grace gives the Christian a unique emotional and spiritual stability that can weather the storm's and disappointments of life. See, when hope is tied exclusively to our human achievements, we despair when our efforts fail, or we will do any number of injustices in the name of achieving some some justice. But when we're working from a place of grace, we're anchored in something that is beyond this present moment. And when something fails, we still have a reason for hope, And when something goes well, we have no reason for hubris or pride because this is not your own doing, this is the gift of God. I mean, can you imagine what our newspapers would look like if they were neither despair nor pride? What would our newspapers look like? This is what the Bible says to all the people and all the places and all the events that populate those newspapers today. You are never beyond the reach of God's grace, and you are never beyond the need for it. I speak these things to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.